You're listening to a podcast from the 5th Annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. The conference took place at Maynooth University on the 28th and 29th of August, 2015. The conference was generously supported by Marsh's Library, the Department of History at Maynooth University, Graduate Studies Office at Maynooth University, UCD Research, UCD School of History, and the Irish Research Council through a new Foundations Award. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Professor John McCafferty from the University College Dublin School of History. His paper was entitled A Habit of Return, Irish Franciscan Friaries, 1539 to 1650. This paper, you have to, as it were, take an act of faith here. I'm going to strip out a lot of the detail, which actually proves the points I'm making. You can ask me about them afterwards, because I have to boil down what was a 50-minute paper into something like uh, 20 minutes. And the central argument of this paper is that still in the history of the Irish Reformation and Counter-Reformation, there is a tendency to treat the process of religious change as enriched political history. And not so much attention, or not as much attention, it seems to me, as I would like, certainly, is given to the uh, inner disposition of the actors. And in this case, I want to look at the effect, it seems to me, of um, being a member of the Franciscan observance had on the responses of the friars to the process of dissolution or not. Now, reporting to Rome on the 8th of April 1613, the internuncio, uh, Bentivoglio, reckoned that there were about 130 Franciscan friars in Ireland, all held, he said, in grandissima venerazione. Many of these, he says, openly wore the habit, they sang in choir, and they were governed in the regular form. Now, as it happens, actually, the lowest recorded number of Franciscan observants in Ireland, uh, that is 65 of them, was actually in 1865. And the smallest number of friaries, that is 12, was actually in 1900. And every single one of those 20th century friaries was on either exactly the same spot or within five minutes' walk of where the Franciscan house had been in 1538. And I always love this conceit. The Franciscans who boasted themselves as rootless mendicants are actually deeply rooted and uh, are lack invention when it comes to moving around, it seems. And in one instance, multi-farnum, total interruption may have lasted for less than three decades from its foundation in 1270 to 2015. Now, if you look at most general re- uh, narratives of early modern Ireland, you get the, uh, a sort of time-lapsed tsunami by which uh, the state gradually extends its control over the island, and one by one, if you look at the historical atlas, it's beautifully coloured out, you'll see who was dissolved under Henry, who was dissolved under Edward, who was dissolved under Elizabeth, who was dissolved under James VI and I. Now, that time-lapse tsunami, it seems to me, does not work neither in respect of the number of friaries nor in the shape, size and sensibility of the Franciscan presence. Now, dissolution, as you all know, in Ireland, like so much about the establishment of the uh, Church of Ireland, relied on cloned English legislation and a casual assumption of English conditions, even when the Crown's own servants in Dublin Castle insisted things or otherwise. Now, I have a whole series of sources I'm using here, mainly internal ones to the Franciscan order. The most important of these is Donatus Mooney's uh, early 17th century account of the province. I won't go into the detail of those, except to say that there's a growing sensibility among the friars in the early 17th century of uh, a claim for a Spanish foundation of uh, the Irish province. 
Now, the friars well knew, most of them, of course, that the province had been founded via England in the 13th century. The spread of the mendicant orders, Dominicans, Franciscans, and so on, is via England, and very much uh, at the, um, uh, due to the sponsorship of the Plantagenet uh, kings. So what we see is a move away from that uh, articulation of Englishness, and I, I just parked that for a moment, and also a sense in which the friars are beginning to understand what happened to them in the previous hundred years in a providential framework. And this framework very vitally uh, posits a movement from a terrible blow under the terrible Tudors uh, to a period of recovery and an inevitable triumphant and imminent recovery of position. Now, according to Donatus Mooney, there were four reasons that the Franciscans survived. Poverty made their friaries unattractive to spoliators. Second, they were a, a mundo valde alieni, so unworldly that even the heretics admired them to the point of conniving at their continuance. Third, and as Mooney says himself, most efficacious, the nobility held the friars as dear as their own possessions since their ancestors lay buried in them. Finally, and animating everyone else, God's promise that seraphic order would exist for all time and everywhere, including this Irish vineyard. So for Mooney, not only were poverty, piety, providence and patronage the determinants of previous survival, they were also the active bodyguards in the face of a new political economy driven by untrammeled prerogative and a wholesale confiscation aimed at the promotion of, and his phrase here is quite precise, debt slaves, a dictee of the crown. So the basic analysis is that those who are in receipt of the crown's favour are debt slaves to the crown. And that works on his entire political economy. You can see how you could play with that idea. Now, Mooney's sermonising about the manner in which the island's fate and that of the friars was bound up was itself a homily which was heeded. This becomes apparent when the mechanics and modalities of suppression and survival are investigated. So what I want to look at very briefly here now, and again I've stripped out a lot of the detail, is what happens in the beginning and then, I suppose, how the friars respond to it. Now, amazingly, when Mooney toured the island in 1614-15, visiting every friary that he knew, he went so far as to propose new syndics, the lay people who carry out the business affairs of the friars, and new arrangements that would become operational when the restoration process began. Now, this is a very odd ebullience, but it points back to an interesting fact that Mooney was aware of. No Franciscan friary was dissolved in the strict legal sense. There were no surrenders, and nor were any pensions paid. Okay? And you can... Uh, Brendan uh, Scott here has written about the dissolution of Dublin and so on. So the conceit is the friars buggered off, and uh, the crown took possession um, but, of course, what happens is a whole variety of things. St. Ledger submits a list of friaries he's not going to go near. The Crown is very uh, reluctant to annoy the Ulster Earls, so don't touch a lot of the friaries. I mean, Donegal, uh, not raided until 1588 in the backwash of the Armada disaster. Uh, by 1600, a community of 40 again, raided and burnt again in 1601, extensive repairs on the way in 1602. And you can multiply those examples of that sort of touch and go. And that does seem to fit into the model, if you like, the model I sort of condemned at the beginning of the expansion of state authority. Now, how were these effects achieved? Well, the, for, the first and most obvious is collusion, and all of you will be abundantly aware of endless instances from the mid-16th century of uh, local uh, patriciates, local merchants, local aristocrats getting in to collusive arrangements. There was also uh, opposition, as I've said, places where it was felt better not to actually lay hands on the friary. 
And then there was the, uh, the favoured Franciscan strategy of proximity or lurking as their enemies were concerned. And there's, a, there's many, many instances of that. So the friars are thrown out of the friary and the colloquial name for Adam and Eve, for the most important Franciscan friar in Dublin, Adam and Eve, stems from the tavern where the friars took refuge five minutes down the road from their original friary in Francis Street. Another form of collusion which is uh, evident in Mooney is an amazing form which people haven't written about much is condominium. And there are a number of examples of these, and I'll just give one. At Moyne, deep in rural Mayo, the English owner, a widow, deduced that the presence of the friars was essential to the continuance of market on the site. Uh, and then there's another one, actually, I will give it uh, my favourite. At Drummer the English heretic, as they say, Harrison, took his cut from burials in the cloister. So this kind of arrangement is going on. Now, it would be very easy to do, and you could do nice work, uh, and, you know, since Brendan Bradshaw's original work, not very much has been done on trying to actually uh, chart the dynamics of dissolution and so on. And it would be interesting to think about the places where the friars actually developed new houses in the 16th century, uh, like Liskool, County Fermanagh, where they take over an old Augustinian friary in 1584, the whole business of Bonamargie and so on. But what I want to do uh, in the kind of 10 or 11 minutes remaining to me is to actually make the point I kind of endeavoured to make at the beginning. And that is to ask ourselves the question is how the friars themselves viewed their friaries, their friaries after Henry VIII's break with Rome. Why did they continue to use the sites? Well, faced in 1615 with the tomb of an invasior clary or priest hunter parked beside the interred, Beside the high altar in the Friary Chapel at Clonmel, the scandalised Donatus Mooney acted swiftly. He ordered the corpse exhumed and dumped. He then proceeded with Episcopal licence to lustrate the area with aqua gregoriana, a mixture of water, salt, ash and wine, just in case you're wondering, don't drink. Uh, but his canonical rectitude and precision are striking. Gregory water was used in the reconciliation of churches, not their reconsecration. And it was the procedure which had been used in the re-Catholicisation of parts of the Spanish Netherlands during the 1560s. And Mooney had been the first guardian at St. Anthony's in Louvain. This was a ceremony designed to deal with interruptions rather than utter breaks. And it evoked discontinuity rather than disaster. And I think that is an important point to make about to understand about their understanding of what was going on. Now, this understanding was paradoxically deepened by the lack of formal dissolution. As the Tudor decades unfolded, Franciscan friaries were overthrown and Franciscan bodies were set upon in an atmosphere of violence. And this stands in contrast, if you like, to the regulatory route taken in England. Now, some of the first houses to be burnt or dismantled, such as Dundalk, Clane, were spoiled by Lord Deputy Grey during the regular seasonal campaigning in 1536. And this is what can be called part of a standard late medieval pattern. But, of course, 16th century was different. Floggings, draggings and tortures of Greyfriars all reached peaks during the frequent commissions of martial law issued under Elizabeth. Commanders and soldiers from England operated against friars not just as rebel adherents and clients as rebel of their rebel lords, as their predecessors had done, but rather in a self-consciously confessionalised manner as shaveling associates of the Pope of Rome. Repeated assertions by the Queen and her officials that the Cordeliers were traitors seemed to be borne out by the use of such spacious friaries as Donegal for large meetings of Gaelic lords and their allies. 
But what's interesting here is the way in which the Crown built on the notion that the friars were um, traitors, which had begun, of course, with the Bruce invasion in 1318, and which had, had uh, included a provision which held up to 1415 that the provincial of the order in Ireland should always be of English blood. The Crown succeeded in doing this. The Franciscan and the castle couldn't help but notice that these flights and returns were a bit like their other set of enemies, the Lords of Ireland. So the Franciscan response to suppression then fitted into an established typology of disloyalty, which was then given further valency by the emergence of a sectarian religious discourse. For its own part, the state then was equally demonstrative in its response in very pointed recyclings of sites, uh, turning them into official residences, we could, or more than once, courthouses and garrisons, which drove the friars crazy. The idea that blood trials were being conducted in the places where the friars were attracted the particular odium of the friars. In 1551, Marshal Bagnall could find no workmen willing to fortify the Armagh friary. So the whole series of local responses to these kind of things but suppression by main force had a deeper unintended consequence. This unintended consequence can be glimpsed in Mooney's easy conflation of Irish history in general with Franciscan history in particular. Martial law, suspicion of treason, expropriation, sudden and acute violence at the hands of state servants and the loss of liberties were all also experienced by the friars' patrons themselves. So if war conditions brokered the uh, rhetoric of faith and fatherland, Irish Franciscan martyrs then were predominantly victims of durance, cruel treatment and random killings. So when Mooney lists all the Irish Franciscan martyrs, there'll be three or four of them you heard of because they're now actually up in heaven doing the saint bit. But then there'll be a vast number you haven't heard of who didn't actually, who weren't executed judicially, who got dragged along behind horses, who died in jail and all the rest. And it seems to me that these martyrdoms sacralized widespread experience rather than exemplifying individual heroic sacrifice. Furthermore, every single friar claimed as a martyr was also a friar whose primary identity was attached to a particular friary. Now, the friars, of course, attracted, as you well know, the attention of patrons during this period, like the Fitzgeralds of Desmond, the O'Briens of Tomond, the Earls of Clanricard, Tyrconnell and Tyrone. And these... I think Mooney is right, they did come to identify maintenance of Franciscan houses with their own ancestry and autonomy. Now, Mooney's insistence on aristocratic sepulchre as a key to survival was at once calculating and mystical. And I suppose this is what I'm interested in, is the interaction between the two. Deathbed assistance and post-mortem provision, such as burial in the habit, not only endured, became even more emblematic as time went on. The friars already acknowledged and funded in medieval Ireland as death specialist. They intensified their claims on their living patrons, not just for passive protection, but for active succour and support. And friary burials only worked if the friars adhered to their part of the, 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 the bargain. So the friars needed to remain in contact with those friaries, or very nearby, for the friaries to continue to be the locus sanctus, in which it was during the Middle Ages, in which people waited for the general resurrection. And that this idea has proved to be extraordinarily enduring, as you well know, because most of the people in this room probably have relations of some kind buried, buried within the precincts of defunct friaries or other such buildings. Christopher Nugent's will of 1604 catches this sense of general, general efficacy perfectly. 
First, he says, I bequeath my soul to God and my body to be buried in some Franciscan monastery, such as my friends think fit. Any Franciscan friary will do. Not even the one that my family actually bailed out in Multifarnham. Just give me, put me in a habit and put me in a friary. Why? Because the friars are nearby. Now, other observant continuities, and I suppose I don't want to labour this. I'll just, just mention a few and then uh, draw this to a close. Um, other observant community, uh, continuities came into play in period 1540 to 60. So um, the observant movement, and again, this is a complex matter, but the observant movement was very administratively heavy, very bureaucratic. Um, in the spring of 1577, William Drury, president of Munster, reported on his exercise of his martial law commission. He says, a friar was lately apprehended, arraigned and hanged in his habit at Limerick for having about him certain letters with blanks, the seals of several abbeys and friaries in this province with letters of commendation to the provincial in Portugal, importing seditious practices. Now, Drury sees sedition here. Fair enough. Game ball. That's what Drury's job was to do. See sedition and string people up. Grand. But what we see here, in effect, is not seditious activity, except in the primunire sense of the word, but, of course, the workings of the observance. Friars tended to be going around, and still do, with letters, seals, documents, and all the rest, because the Franciscan order, despite its own self-image, is a massive bureaucracy because they insist on electing all of their officers. So you can imagine, it's like universities were in the days before we were streamlined. Uh, it, this is the kind of organisation that, that you're looking at here. One final example, and then I'll, I'll draw to a close. Um, the other unknown story of the Franciscan survival in early modern Ireland is the way in which the, the observants picked off the remaining conventual houses in this period. And remember what happens in Ireland is the complete opposite of what happens in England. George Brown, of course, was Archbishop of Dublin, was an expert on this. And what happens in England is the few royal observant houses are picked off early and the remainder of the friars before the whole lot comes tumbling down get thrown into conventual houses. It's the opposite in Ireland. The overwhelming number of houses are observant, and the observants go around merrily picking off the last remaining uh, conventuals. Now, Neil O'Clary, when he writes about this uh, in his history, begins in 1460, ends in 1632. He records the adoption of the observants by each community using this phrase, convent, exul, de glocca, and reformation. Some convent accepted the reformation. Of course, the word reformation also denotes the Protestant reformation. What O'Cleary is doing here is engaging in an act of eloquent, passive aggression, penned continuity. It relegates the big reformation, the one we're familiar with in England and the continent, to transient status. The real reformation is the internal and continued reformation of the order which goes on and on and on. So internalising the pain of war and persecution as part of holy poverty, the observance of poverty, internalising this pain as part of holy poverty, not only enhanced Franciscan solidarity for themselves, but also provided powerful exemplars for the Catholic community. We are in the same boat as you, is the argument, essentially. This sincerely meant demonstrativeness is perhaps caught in a report of 1580, which recorded Ono Duffy, then provincial, travelling about the country barefoot and begging, preaching only in the vernacular kind of a CC in Aaron. Now, I had some other points about um, questing, uh, which again is a very technical matter, but I think all I really want to say on that uh, subject now, you can ask me about it again if you're even vaguely interested. Questing, of course, is the, 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 the practice by which the friars uh, raise goods and, and 
sometimes money for the maintenance of the friaries by begging around a particular precinct. What's particularly interesting about the Franciscan survival in this period is the way in which, even when houses are temporarily occupied or otherwise obliterated, they still appoint guardians to those houses and they still quest in the precincts based. The rule stipulates a kind of if you like, if you're, if you're fond of the game Settlers of K-Towns, which is all laid out in hexagons, you'll know what I mean. It, 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 they're like cells, and you, you, you continue to beg in that area. Friars continue to identify with those precincts, even when the convent is temporarily, if you like, unavailable. So, a century after dissolution, the presence of a network of Irish friars was an established fact. Such persistence was the result of an adept combination, it seems to me, of pre-existing factors with the particular political circumstances of ten decades of dislocation and change. In the first decade of, Char- of Charles I, the Irish Friars directed a project to write the first ever set of annals for the whole island. Composed by one Franciscan and three lay historians, its official title, Annals of the Kingdom of Ireland, was soon superseded by the title by which the compilation is still known, Annals of the Four Masters. The latter is not a pun on the fact that four blokes wrote it. It's a pun on the fact that there are four master commentators on the Franciscan rule. And I think this is a revealing observant in-joke, which collapses Irish, Franciscan and Catholic identity into one super-dense formulation. This compound was forged in a crisis of suppression and survival, which forced the friars to work and rework their observant heritage and vocation. And I think they like to think that it worked. Thank you.